Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and today, chapters 11, 12, and 13 of The House of a Thousand Candles. And now, chapter 11, I Receive a Caller. Going to bed at three o'clock on a winter morning in a house whose ways are disquieting, after a duel in which you escaped whole only by sheer good luck, does not fit one for sleep. When I finally drew the covers over me, it was to lie and speculate upon the events of the night in connection with the history of the few weeks I had spent at Glenarm. Larry had suggested in New York that Pickering was playing some deep game, and I myself could not accept Pickering's statement that my grandfather's large fortune had proved to be a myth. If Pickering had not stolen or dissipated it, where was it concealed? Morgan was undoubtedly looking for something of value, or he would not risk his life in the business, and it was quite possible that he was employed by Pickering to search for hidden property. This idea took strong hold of me, the more readily, I fear, since I had always been anxious to see evil in Pickering. There was, to be sure, the unknown alternative heir, but neither she nor Sister Teresa was, I imagined, a person capable of hiring an assassin to kill me. On reflection, I dismissed the idea of appealing to the county authorities, and I never regretted that resolution. The seat of Wabana County was twenty miles away, the processes of law were unfamiliar, and I wished to avoid publicity. Morgan might, of course, have been easily disposed of by an appeal to the Annandale Constable, but now that I suspected Pickering of treachery, the caretaker's importance dwindled. I had waited all my life for a chance at Arthur Pickering, and in this affair I hoped to draw him into the open and settle with him. I slept presently, but woke at my usual hour, and after a tub felt ready for another day. Bates served me, as usual, a breakfast that gave a fair aspect to the morning. I was alert for any sign of perturbation in him, but I had already decided that I might as well look for emotion in a stone wall as in this placid, colorless serving man. I had no reason to suspect him of complicity in the night's affair, but I had no faith in him, and merely waited until he should throw himself more boldly into the game. By my plate next morning I found this note, written in a clear, bold woman's hand. The Sisters of St. Agatha trust that the intrusion upon his grounds by Miss Armstrong, one of their students, has caused Mr. Glenarm no annoyance. The sisters beg that this infraction of their discipline will be overlooked, and they assure Mr. Glenarm that it will not recur. An unnecessary apology. The notepaper was of the best quality. At the head of the page, St. Agatha's Annandale was embossed in purple. It was the first note I had received from a woman for a long time, and it gave me a pleasant emotion. One of the sisters I had seen beyond the wall undoubtedly wrote it, possibly Sister Teresa herself. A clever woman, that, thoroughly capable of plucking money from guileless old gentlemen. Poor Olivia, born for freedom, but doomed to a pent-up existence with a lot of nuns. I resolved to send her a box of candy sometime, just to annoy her grim guardians. Then my own affairs claimed attention. Bates, I asked, do you know what Mr. Glenarm did with the plans for the house? He started slightly. I should not have noticed it if I had not been keen for his answer. Uh, no, sir, I can't put my hand upon them, sir. That's all very well, Bates, 
but you didn't answer my question. Do you know where they are? I'll put my hand on them if you will kindly tell me where they're kept. Mr. Glenarm, I fear very much that they have been destroyed. I tried to find them before you came to tell you the whole truth, sir, but they must have been made way with. That's very interesting, Bates. Will you kindly tell me when you suspect of destroying them? The toast again, please. His hand shook as he passed the plate. I hardly like to say, sir, when it's only a suspicion. Of course, I shouldn't ask you to incriminate yourself, but I'll have to insist on my question. It may have occurred to you, Bates, that I'm in a sense, in a sense, mind you, the master here. Well, I should say, if you press me, that I fear, Mr. Glenarm, your grandfather burned the plans when he left here the last time. I hope you will pardon me, sir, for seeming to reflect upon him. Reflect upon that devil? What was his idea, do you suppose? I think, sir, if you will pardon— Don't be so fussy, I snapped. Damn your pardon, and go on. He wanted you to study out the place for yourself, sir. It was dear to his heart, this house. He set his heart upon having you enjoy it. I like the word. Go ahead. And I suppose there are things about it that he wished you to learn for yourself. You know them, of course, and are watching me to see when I'm hot or cold, like kids playing hide the handkerchief. The fellow turned and faced me across the table. Mr. Glenarm... "'As I hope God may be merciful to me in the last judgment, "'I don't know any more than you do.' "'You were here with Mr. Glenarm all the time he was building the house, "'that weren't what they appeared to be, "'or doors made that didn't lead anywhere. "'I summoned all my irony and contempt for this arraignment. "'He lifted his hand, as though making oath. "'As God sees me, all that is true. "'I was here to care for the dead master's comfort.' "'and not to spy on him. "'And Morgan, your friend, what about him?' "'I wish I knew, sir.' "'I wish to the devil you did,' "'and I flung out of the room "'and went into the library. "'At eleven o'clock I heard a pounding "'at the great front door, "'and Bates came to announce a caller, "'who was now audibly knocking the snow "'from his shoes in the outer hall. "'The Reverend Paul Stoddard, sir.' The chaplain of St. Agatha's was a big fellow, as I had remarked on the occasion of his interview with Olivia Gladys Armstrong by the wall. His light brown hair was close-cut, his smooth-shaven face was bright with the freshness of youth. Here was a sturdy young apostle without frills, but with a vigorous grip that left my hand tingling. His voice was deep and musical, a voice that suggested sincerity and inspired confidence. "'I'm afraid I haven't been neighborly, Mr. Glenarm. "'I was called away from home a few days after I heard of your arrival, "'and I have just got back. "'I blew in yesterday with the snowstorm.' "'He folded his arms easily and looked at me with cheerful directness, "'as though politely interested in what manner of man I might be. "'It was a fine storm. I got a great day out of it,' I said. "'An Indiana snowstorm is something I've never experienced before.' "'This is my second winter. "'I came out here because I wished to do some reading, "'and I thought I'd rather do it alone than in a university. "'Studious habits are rather forced on one out here, I should say. "'In my own case, my course of reading is all cut out for me.' 
He ran his eyes over the room. "'The Glenarm collection is famous. The best in the country, easily, Mr. Glenarm. Your grandfather was certainly an enthusiast. I met him several times. He was a trifle hard to meet.' And the clergyman smiled. I felt rather uncomfortable, assuming that he probably knew I was undergoing discipline, and why my grandfather had so ordained it. The Reverend Paul Stoddard was so simple, unaffected, and manly a fellow that I shrank from the thought that I must appear to him an ungrateful blackguard whom my grandfather had marked with obloquy. "'My grandfather had his whims, but he was a fine, generous-hearted old gentleman,' I said. "'Yes, in my few interviews with him he surprised me by the range of his knowledge. He was quite able to instruct me in certain curious branches of church history that had appealed to him.' "'You were here when he built the house?' "'My visitor laughed cheerfully. "'I was on my side of the barricade for a part of the time. "'You know there was a great deal of mystery about the building of this house. "'The country folk hereabouts can't quite get over it. "'They have a superstition that there's a treasure buried somewhere on the place. "'You see, Mr. Glenarm wouldn't employ any local labor. "'The work was done by men he brought from afar. "'None of them, the villagers say, could speak English.' "'They were all Greeks or Italians.' "'Yeah, I heard something of the kind,' I remarked, "'feeling that here was a man "'who with a little cultivating "'might help me to solve some of my riddles.' "'And then he spoke up. "'You haven't been on our side of the wall yet? "'Well, I promise not to molest your hidden treasure "'if you'll be neighborly.' "'I fear there's a big joke involved in the hidden treasure,' "'I replied. "'I'm so busy staying at home to guard it "'that I have no time for social recreation.' "'He looked at me quickly to see whether I was joking. "'His eyes were steady and earnest. "'The Reverend Paul Stoddard impressed me more and more agreeably. "'There was a suggestion of a quiet strength about him "'that drew me to him. "'I suppose everyone around here thinks of nothing "'but that I'm a glenarm to earn my inheritance. "'My residence here must look pretty sordid from the outside.' "'He looked at me solidly and said, "'Mr. Glenarm's will is a matter of record in the county, of course. "'But you are too hard on yourself. "'It's nobody's business if your grandfather wished to visit his whims on you. "'I should say, in my own case, "'that I don't consider it any of my business what you are here for. "'I didn't come over to annoy you or to pry into your affairs. "'I get lonely now and then, and I thought I'd like to establish neighborly relations.' "'Well, thank you. I appreciate your coming very much.' my heart warmed under the manifest kindness of the man. And I hope, he spoke for the first time with restraint, I hope nothing may prevent your knowing Sister Teresa and Miss Devereux. They are interesting and charming, the only women about here of your own social status. My liking for him abated slightly. He might be a detective, representing the alternative heir, for all I knew, and possibly Sister Teresa was a party to the conspiracy. "'In time, no doubt, in time. I shall know them,' I answered evasively. "'Oh, quite as you like.' And he changed the subject. We talked of many things, of outdoor sports, with which he showed great familiarity, of universities, of travel and adventure. He was a Columbia man and had spent two years at Oxford. "'Well,' he exclaimed, "'this has been very pleasant, but I must run. I have just been over to see Morgan, "'the caretaker at the resort village. "'The poor fellow accidentally shot himself yesterday, "'cleaning his gun or something of that sort, 
"'and he has an ugly hole in his arm "'will shut him in for a month or worse. "'He gave me an errand to do for him. "'He's a conscientious fellow "'and wished me to wire for him to Mr. Pickering "'that he'd been hurt, "'but was attending to his duties. "'Pickering owns a cottage over there, "'and Morgan has charge of it. "'You know Pickering, of course.' "'I looked my clerical neighbor straight in the eye, "'a trifle coldly, perhaps. "'I was wondering why Morgan, "'with whom I had enjoyed a duel in my own cellar "'only a few hours before, "'should be reporting his injury to Arthur Pickering. "'I think I have seen Morgan about here,' I said. "'Oh, yes, he's a woodsman and a hunter, "'our Nimrod of the lake.' "'A good sort, very likely. "'I dare say. "'He has sometimes brought me ducks during season.' "'To be sure. "'They shoot ducks at night, these Hoosier hunters. "'So I hear.' "'He laughed as he shook himself into his greatcoat. "'That's possible, though unsportsmanlike, "'but we don't have to look a gift mallard in the eye.' "'We laughed together. "'I found that it was easy to laugh with him. "'By the way, I forgot to get Pickering's address from Morgan, "'if you happen to have it.' "'With pleasure,' I said. "'Alexis Building, Broadway, New York.' "'Good,' "'That's easy to remember,' he said, smiling and turning up his coat collar. "'Don't forget me. I'm quartered in a hermit's cell back of the chapel, and I believe we can find many matters of interest to talk about.' "'I am confident of it,' I said, glad of the sympathy and cheer that seemed to emanate from his stalwart figure. I threw on my overcoat and walked to the gate with him, and saw him hurry toward the village with long strides. "'We'll return with Chapter Twelve right after this message from our sponsors. And now, Chapter 12 of The House of a Thousand Candles. I Explore a Passage. I found him busy replenishing the candlesticks in the library. It seemed to me that he was always poking about with an armful of candles. There are a good many queer things in this world, but I guess you're one of the queerest. I don't mind telling you that there are times when I think you are a thoroughly bad lot. He was standing on a ladder beneath the great crystal chandelier that hung from the center of the ceiling, and looked down upon me with that patient injury that is so appealing as a dog, in, say, the eyes of an Irish setter, when you accidentally step on his tail. That look is heartbreaking in a setter, but seen in a man, it arouses the direst homicidal feelings of which I am capable. "'Yes, Mr. Glenarm,' he replied humbly. "'Now,' I want you to grasp this idea that I'm going to dig into this old shell top and bottom. I'm going to blow it up with dynamite, if I please, and if I catch you spying on me or reporting my doings to my enemies, or engaging in any questionable performances whatever, I'll hang you between the posts out there in the school wall. Do you understand? So that the sweet sisters of St. Agatha and the dear little schoolgirls and the chaplain and all the rest will shudder through all their lives at the very thought of you. "'Certainly, Mr. Glenarm,' and his tone was the same he would have used if I had asked him to pass me the matches, and under my breath I consigned him to the harshest tortures of the fiery pit. "'Now, as to Morgan—' "'Yes, sir. "'What possible business do you suppose he has with Mr. Pickering?' I demanded. "'Why, sir, that's clear enough. "'Mr. Pickering owns a house up the lake. "'He got it through your grandfather. "'Morgan has the care of it, sir.' "'Very plausible, indeed,' and I set him off to his work. "'After luncheon I went below and directly to the end of the corridor "'and began to sound the walls. "'To the eye they were all alike, 
being of cement, and substantial enough. Through the area window I saw the solid earth and snow. Surely there was little here to base hope upon, and my wonder grew at the ease with which Morgan had vanished through a barred window and into frozen ground. The walls at the end of the passage were as solid as rock, and they responded dully to the stroke of the hammer. I sounded them on both sides, retracing my steps to the stairway, becoming more and more impatient at my ill luck or stupidity. There was every reason why I should know my own house, and yet a stranger and an outlaw ran through it with amazing daring. After an hour's idle search, I returned to the end of the corridor, repeated all my previous soundings, and, I fear, indulged in language unbecoming a gentleman. Then, in my blind anger, I found what patient search had not disclosed. I threw the hammer from me in a fit of temper. It struck upon a large square in the cement floor which gave forth the hollow sound. I was on my knees in an instant, my fingers searching the cracks, and drawing down close I could feel a current of air, slight but unmistakable, against my face. The cement square, though exactly like the others in the cellar floor, was evidently only a wooden imitation, covering an opening beneath. The block was fitted into its place with a nicety that certified to the skill of the hand that had adjusted it. I broke a blade of my pocket knife trying to pry it up, but in a moment I succeeded, and found it to be in reality a trap door, hinged to the substantial part of the floor. A current of cool fresh air, the same that had surprised me in the night, struck my face as I lay flat and peered into the opening. The lower passage was as black as pitch, and I lighted a lantern I had brought with me, found that wooden steps gave safe conduct below, and then went down. I stood erect in the passage and had several inches to spare. It extended both ways, running back under the foundations of the house. This lower passage cut squarely under the park before the house and toward the school wall. No wonder my grandfather had brought foreign laborers who could speak no English to work on his house. There was something delightful in the largeness of his scheme, and I hurried through the tunnel with a hundred questions tormenting my brain. The air grew steadily fresher until, after I had gone about two hundred yards, I reached a point where the wind seemed to beat down on me from above. I put up my hands and found two openings about two yards apart, through which the air sucked steadily. I moved out of the current with a chuckle in my throat and a grin on my face. I had passed under the gate in the school wall, and I knew now why the piers that held it had been built so high. They were hollow and were the means of sending fresh air into the tunnel. I had traversed about twenty yards more when I felt a slight vibration accompanied by a muffled roar, and almost immediately came to a short wooden stair that marked the end of the passage. I had no means of judging directions, but I assumed I was somewhere near the chapel in the school grounds. I climbed the steps, noting still the vibration, and found a door that yielded readily to pressure. In a moment I stood blinking, lantern in hand, in a well-lighted, floored room. Overhead the tumult and thunder of an organ explained the tremor and roar I had heard below. I was in the crypt of St. Agatha's Chapel. The inside of the door by which I had entered was part of the wainscoting of the room, and the opening was wholly covered with a map of the Holy Land. In my absorption I had lost the sense of time, and I was amazed to find that it was five o'clock, but I resolved to go into the chapel before going home. The way up was clear enough, and I was soon in the vestibule. I opened the door, expecting to find a service in progress, 
but the little church was empty save where, at the right of the chancel, an organist was filling the church with the notes of a triumphant march. Cap in hand, I stole forward and sank down in one of the pews. A lamp over the organ keyboard gave the only light in the chapel and made an aureole about her head, about the uncovered head of Olivia Gladys Armstrong. I smiled as I recognized her and smiled too as I remembered her name. But the joy she brought to the music, the happiness in her face as she raised it in the minor harmonies, her isolation, marked by the little aisle of light against the dark background of the choir. These things touched and moved me, and I bent forward, my arms upon the pew in front of me, watching and listening with a kind of awed wonder. Here was a refuge of peace and lulling harmony after the disturbed life at Glenarm, and I yielded myself to its solace with an inclination my life had rarely known. There was no pause in the outpouring of the melody. She changed stops and manuals with swift fingers, and passed from one composition to another. Now it was an Auguste hymn, now a theme from Wagner, and finally Mendelssohn's spring song leaped forth exultant in the dark chapel. She seized suddenly with a little sigh and struck her hands together, for the place was cold. As she reached up to put out the lights, I stepped forward to the chancel steps. Please allow me to do that for you. She turned toward me, gathering a cape about her. "'Oh, it's you, is it?' she asked, looking about quickly. "'I don't remember, I don't seem to remember, that you were invited.' "'I didn't know I was coming myself,' I remarked, truthfully, lifting my hand to the lamp. "'That is my opinion of you, that you are a rather unexpected person. But thank you very much.' She showed no disposition to prolong the interview, but hurried toward the door, and reached the vestibule before I came up with her. "'You can't go any further, Mr. Glenarm,' she said, and waited as though to make sure I understood. Straight before us, through the wood and beyond the school buildings, the sunset faded sullenly. The night was following fast upon the gray twilight, and already the bolder planets were aflame in the sky. The path led straight ahead beneath the black boughs. "'I might perhaps walk to the dormitory, or whatever you call it, I said. Thank you, no. I'm late and haven't time to bother with you. It's against the rules, you know, for us to receive visitors. She stepped out onto the path. But I'm not a caller. I'm just a neighbor, and I owe you several calls anyhow. She laughed, but did not pause, and I followed a pace behind her. I hope you don't think for a minute that I chased a rabbit on your side of the fence just to meet you, do you, Mr. Glenarm? "'Be it far from me. "'I'm glad I came, though, "'for I liked your music immensely. "'I'm in earnest. "'I think it quite wonderful, Miss Armstrong.' "'She paid no heed to me. "'And I hope I may promise myself "'the pleasure of hearing you often.' "'You are positively flattering, Mr. Glenarm, "'but as I'm going away... "'I felt my heart sink "'at the thought of her going away. "'She was the only amusing person "'I had met at Glenarm and the idea of losing her gave a darker note to the bleak landscape. "'That's really too bad, and just when we were getting acquainted. And I was coming to church every Sunday to hear you play and pray, pray for snow, so you'd come over often to chase rabbits.' This, I thought, softened her heart. At any rate, her tone changed. "'I don't play for services. They're afraid to let me for fear I'd run comic opportunes into the, the tedium. 
Do you know Mr. Glenarm? Her tone became confidential, and her pace slackened. We call you the squire, at St. Agatha's, and the lord of the manor, and names like that. All the girls are perfectly crazy about you. They'd be wild if they thought I talked with you clandestinely. Is that the way you pronounce that word? Anything you say, and any way you say it, satisfies me, I replied. That's ever so nice of you, she said, mockingly, again. I felt foolish and guilty. She would probably get roundly scolded if the grave sisters learned of her talks with me, and very likely I should win their hearty contempt. But I did not turn back. I hope the reason you're leaving isn't... I hesitated. Ill conduct? Oh, yes. I'm terribly wicked, Squire Glenarm. They're sending me off. But I suppose they're awfully strict, the sisters. They're hideous. Perfectly hideous. Where's your home? I demanded. Chicago? Indianapolis? Cincinnati? Hmph! You are dull. You ought to know from my accent that I'm not from Chicago, and I hope I haven't a Kentucky girl's air of, of waiting to be flattered to death. And no Indianapolis girl would talk to a strange man at the edge of a deep wood in the gray twilight of a winter day. That's from a book. And the Cincinnati girl is without my elan, esprit, whatever you please to call it. She has a more Teutonic repose, more of Gretchen of the Rhine Valley about her. Don't you adore French, Squire Glenarm? She concluded breathlessly, and with no pause in her quick step. I adore yours, Miss Armstrong, I asserted, yielding myself further to the joy of idiocy, and delighting in the mockery and changing moods of her talk. I did not make her out, indeed. I preferred not to. I was not then, and I am not now, thank God, of an analytical turn of mind. And as I grow older, I prefer, even after many a blow, to take my fellow human beings a good deal as I find them. And as for women, old or young, I envy no man his gift of resolving them into elements, as well carry a spray of arbutus to the laboratory, or subject the enchantment of moonlight upon running water to the flame and blowpipe, as to try to analyze the heart of a girl, particularly a girl who paddles a canoe with a sure stroke and puts up a good race with a rabbit. A lamp shone ahead of us at the entrance of one of the houses, and lights appeared in all the buildings. If I knew your window, I would certainly sing under it, except that you're going home. You didn't tell me why they were deporting you. I'm really ashamed to. You would never... Oh, yes, I would. I'm really an old friend, I insisted feeling more like an idiot every minute. Well, don't tell. But they caught me flirting with the grocery boy. Now, aren't you disgusted? Thoroughly. I can't believe it. Why, you'd a lot better flirt with me, I suggested boldly. Well, I'm ever to be sent away for good at Christmas. I may come back then if I can square myself. My, that's slang. Isn't it horrid? The sisters don't like slang, I suppose. They loathe it. Miss Devereux, you know who she is. She spies on us and tells. You don't say so, but I'm not surprised at her. I've heard about her, I declared bitterly. We had reached the door, and I expected her to fly, but she lingered a moment. Oh, if you know her, perhaps you're a spy too. It's just as well we should never meet again, Mr. Glenarm. "'she declared haughtily. "'The memory of these few meetings "'will always linger with me, Miss Armstrong.' 
I returned in an imitation of her own tone. I shall scorn to remember you. And she folded her arms under the cloak tragically. Our meetings have been all too few, Miss Armstrong. Three exactly, I believe. I see you prefer to ignore the first time I ever saw you, she said, her hand on the door. Out there in your canoe? Never. And you've forgiven me for overhearing you and the chaplain on the wall. Please? She grasped the knob of the door and paused an instant as though pondering. I make it four times, not counting once in the road and other times when you didn't know, Squire Glenarm. I'm a foolish little girl to have remembered the first. I see now how B-L-I-N-D I have been. She opened and closed the door softly, and I heard her running up the steps within. I ran back to the chapel, roundly abusing myself for having neglected my more serious affairs for a bit of silly talk with a schoolgirl, fearful lest the openings I had left at both ends of the passage should have been discovered. The tunnel added a new and puzzling factor to the problem already before me, and I was eager for an opportunity to sit down in peace and comfort to study the situation. At the chapel I narrowly escaped running into Stoddard, but I slipped past him, pulled the hidden door into place, traversed the tunnel without incident, and soon climbed through the hatchway and slammed the false block securely into the opening. Chapter 13. A Pair of Eavesdroppers When I came down after dressing for dinner, Bates called my attention to a belated mail. I pounced eagerly upon a letter in Lawrence Donovan's well-known hand, bearing, to my surprise, an American stamp, and postmarked New Orleans. It was dated, however, at Veracruz, Mexico, December 15, 1901. Dear old man, I've had a merry time since I saw you in New York. Couldn't get away for a European port as I hoped when I left you, as the authorities seemed to be taking my case seriously, and I was lucky to get off as a deckhand on a southbound boat. I expected to get a slice of English prodigal veal at Christmas, but as things stand now, I am grateful to be loose even in this godforsaken hole. The British bulldog is eager to insert its teeth in my trousers, and I was flattered to see my picture bulletined in a conspicuous place the day I struck Veracruz. You see, they're badgering the government at home because I'm not apprehended, and they've got to catch and hang me to show that they've really got their hands on the Irish situation. I'm not afraid of these people down in Veracruz. No people who gorge themselves with bananas and red peppers can be dangerous. But the British consul here has a bad eye, and even as I write I am dimly conscious that a sleek person who is ostensibly engaged in literary work at the next table is really killing time while he waits for me to finish this screed. No doubt you are peacefully settled on your ancestral estate with only a few months and a little patience between you and your grandfather's shire. You always were a lucky brute. People die just to leave you money, whereas I have to die to get out of jail. I hope to land under the stars and stripes within a few days, either across country through El Paso or via New Orleans, preferably the former, as a man's social position is rated high in Texas in proportion to the amount of reward that's out for him. They'd probably give me the freedom of the state if they knew my crimes had been the subject of debate in the House of Commons. But the man across the table is casually looking over here for a glimpse of my signature, so I must give him a good one just for fun. With best wishes always, faithfully yours, George Washington Smith. P.S. I shan't mail this here, but give it to a red-haired Irishman on a steamer that sails north tonight. Pleasant, I must say, this eternal dodging. Wish I could share your rural paradise for a length of a pipe and a bottle. 
"'I have forgotten whether you said Indian Territory or Indiana, "'but we'll take chances on the latter "'as more remotely suggesting the Aborigines.' "'Bates gave me my coffee in the library "'as I wished to settle down to an evening of reflection without delay. "'Larry's report of himself was not reassuring. "'I knew that if he had any idea of trying to reach me, "'he would not mention it in a letter "'which might fall into the hands of the authorities, "'and the hope that he might join me grew. "'I was not, perhaps, entitled to a companion at Glenarm "'under the terms of my exile, "'but as a matter of protection in the existing condition of affairs, "'there could be no legal or moral reason "'why I should not defend myself against my foes, "'and Larry was an ally worth having. "'In all my hours of questioning and anxiety at Glenarm, "'I never doubted the amiable intentions of my grandfather. "'His device for compelling my residence at his absurd house "'was in keeping with his character, "'and it was all equitable enough. "'But his dead hand had no control over the strange issue, "'and I felt justified in interpreting the will "'in the light of my experiences.' I certainly did not intend to appeal to the local police authorities, at least not until the animus of the attack on me was determined. My neighbor, the chaplain, had inadvertently given me a bit of important news, and my mind kept reverting to the fact that Morgan was reporting his injury to the executor of my grandfather's estate in New York. Everything else that had happened was tame and unimportant compared with this. Why had John Marshall Glenarm made Arthur Pickering the executor of his estate? He knew that I detested him, that Pickering's noble aims and high ambitions had been praised by my family until his very name sickened me, and yet my own grandfather had thought it wise to entrust his fortune and my future to the man of all men who was most repugnant to me. I rose and paced the floor in anger. Instead of accepting Pickering's word for it that the will was all straight, I should have employed counsel and taken legal advice before suffering myself to be rushed away into a part of the world I had never visited before, and cooped up in a dreary house under the eye of a somber scoundrel who might poison me any day, if he did not prefer to shoot me in my sleep. My rage must fasten upon someone, and Bates was the nearest target for it. I went to the kitchen where he usually spent his evenings to vent my feelings upon him, only to find him gone. I climbed to his room and found it empty. Very likely he was off condoling with his friend and fellow conspirator, the caretaker, and I fumed with rage and disappointment. I was thoroughly tired, as tired as on days when I had beaten my way through tropical jungles without food or water, but I wished, in my impotent anger against I knew not what agencies, to punish myself to induce an utter weariness that would drag me exhausted to bed. The snow in the highway was well beaten down, and I swung off countryward past St. Agatha's. A gray mist hung over the fields in whirling clouds, breaking away occasionally and showing the throbbing winter stars. The walk, and my interest in the alternation of star-lighted and mist-wrapped landscape, won me to a better state of mind, and after tramping a couple of miles, I set out for home. Several times on my tramp I had caught myself whistling the air of a majestic old hymn and smiled, remembering my young friend Olivia and her playing in the chapel. She was an amusing child. The thought of her further lifted my spirit, and I turned into the school park as I passed the outer gate with a half-recognized wish to pass near the barracks where she spent her days. At the school gate the lamps of a carriage suddenly blurred in the mist. 
Carriages were not common in this region, and I was not surprised to find that this was the familiar village hack that met trains day and night at Glenarm Station. Some parent, I conjectured, paying a visit to St. Agatha's. Perhaps the father of Miss Olivia Gladys Armstrong had come to carry her home for a stricter discipline than Sister Teresa's school afforded. The driver sat asleep on his box, and I passed him and went on into the grounds. A whim seized me to visit the crypt of the chapel and examine the opening to the tunnel. As I passed a little group of school buildings, a man came hurriedly from one of them and turned toward the chapel. At first I thought it was Stoddard, but I could not make him out in the mist, and I waited for him to put twenty paces between us before I followed along the path that led from the school to the chapel. He strode into the chapel porch with an air of assurance, and I heard him address someone who had been waiting. The mist was now so heavy that I could not see my hand before my face, and I stole forward until I could hear the voices of the two men distinctly. "'Bates! Yes, sir!' I heard feet scraping on the stone floor of the porch. "'This is a devil of a place to tuck in, but it's the best we can do. Did the young man know I sent for you?' "'No, sir!' "'He was quite busy with his books and papers. "'Humph! "'We can never be sure of him. "'I suppose that's correct, sir. "'Well, you and Morgan are a fine pair, I must say. "'I thought he had some sense, "'and that you'd see to it that he didn't make a mess of this thing. "'He's in bed now with a hole in his arm, "'and you've got to go on alone. "'I'll do my best, Mr. Pickering.' "'Don't call me by name, you idiot!' "'We're not advertising our business from the housetops?' "'Certainly not,' replied Bates humbly. "'The blood was roaring through my head, "'and my hands were clenched as I stood there listening to this colloquy. "'Pickering's voice was, and is, unmistakable. "'There is always a purring softness in it. "'He used to remind me at school of a sleek, complacent cat, "'and I hate cats with particular loathing.' "'Is Morgan lying or not when he says he shot himself accidentally?' demanded Pickering petulantly. "'I only know what I heard from the gardener here at the school. You'll understand, I hope, that I can't be seen going to Morgan's house.' "'Of course not. But he says you haven't played fair with him, that you even attacked him a few days after Glenarm came.' "'Yes, and he hit me over the head with a club. It was his indiscretion, sir. He wanted to go through the library in broad daylight.' "'and it wasn't any use anyhow. "'There's nothing there. "'But I don't like the looks of this shooting. "'Morgan's sick and out of his head. "'But a fellow like Morgan isn't likely to shoot himself accidentally. "'And now that it's done, the work's stopped and the time is running on. "'What do you think Glenarm suspects?' "'I can't tell, sir, but mighty little, I should say. "'The shot through the window the first night he was here "'seemed to shake him a trifle, "'but he's quite settled down now, I should say.' "'He probably doesn't spend much time on this side of the fence. "'Doesn't haunt the chapel, I fancy.' "'Lord, no, sir. "'I hardly suspect the young gentleman of being a praying man.' "'You haven't seen him prowling about, analyzing the architecture?' "'Not a bit of it, sir. "'He hasn't, I should say, what his revered grandfather called the analytical mind. "'Hearing yourself discussed in this frank fashion by your own servant "'is, I suppose, a wholesome thing for the spirit.' The man who stands behind your chair may acquire, in time, some special knowledge of your mental processes by a diligent study of the back of your head. But I was not half so angry with these conspirators as with myself, for ever having entertained a single generous thought toward Bates. It was, however, 
consoling to know that Morgan was lying to Pickering, and that my own exploits in the house were unknown to the executor. Pickering stamped his feet upon the paved porch floor in a way that I remembered of old. It marked a conclusion, and preluded serious statements. "'Now, Bates,' he said, with a ring of authority, and speaking in a louder key than he had yet used, "'it's your duty under all the circumstances to help discover the hidden assets of the estate. We've got to pluck the mystery from that architectural monster over there, and the time for doing it is short enough. Mr. Glenarm was a rich man. To my own knowledge he had a couple of millions, and he couldn't have spent it all on that house. He reduced his bank account to a few thousand dollars and swept out his safety vault boxes with a broom before his last trip into Vermont. He didn't die with the stuff in his clothes, did he? Lord bless me, no, sir. There was little enough cash to bury him, and with you out of the country, and me alone with him. He was a crank, and I suppose he got a lot of satisfaction out of concealing his money. But this hunt for it isn't funny. I supposed, of course, we'd dig it up before Glenarm got here, or I shouldn't have been in such a hurry to send for him. But it's over there somewhere, or in the grounds. There must be a plan of the house that would help. I'll give you a thousand dollars the day you wire me you found any sort of clue. Thank you, sir. I don't want thanks. I want the money, or securities, or whatever it is. I've got to go back to my car now, and you better skip home. You needn't tell your young master that I've been here. I was trying hard to believe, as I stood there with clenched hands outside the chapel porch, that Arthur Pickering's name was written in the list of directors of one of the greatest trust companies in America, and that he belonged to the most exclusive clubs in New York. I had run out for a walk with only an inverness over my dinner jacket, and I was thoroughly chilled by the cold mist I was experiencing, too, an inner cold, as I reflected upon the greed and perfidy of the man. "'Keep an eye on Morgan,' said Pickering. "'Certainly, sir. And be careful what you write or wire. I'll mind those points, sir, but I suggest, if you please—' "'Well?' demanded Pickering. "'That you should call at the house.' It would look rather strange to the young gentleman if you'd come here and not see him. I haven't the slightest errand with him, and besides, I haven't time. If he learns that I've been here, you may say that my business was with Sister Teresa, and that I regretted very much not having an opportunity to call on him. The irony of this was not lost on Bates, who chuckled softly. He came out into the open and turned away toward the Glenarm Gate. Pickering passed me, so near that I might have put out my hand and touched him, in a moment I heard the carriage drive off rapidly toward the village. I heard Bates running home over the snow and listened to the clatter of the village hack as it bore Pickering back to Annandale. Then out of the depths of the chapel porch, out of the depths of time and space it seemed, so dazed I stood. Someone came swiftly toward me. Someone, light of foot like a woman, ran down the walk a little way into the fog and paused. An exclamation broke from me. Eavesdropping for two? Next came the voice of Olivia. I'd take pretty good care of myself if I were you, Squire Glenarm. Good night. Goodbye, I faltered, as she sped away into the mist toward the school. We'll be back with more of the story next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Thank you so much for listening. It's quite a story, isn't it? Everyone stay safe out there. We'll be back soon. <laughs>